0: Today's host. We are the Literature Association from Zhongzhen University. And today we invite Benjamin Hill, who is currently Assistant Professor of American Literature at National Zhongzhou University, Taiwan. He completed his doctoral thesis titled Transatlantic Cross Current European Influences and Descent in the Work of Hobos and William. Borrowed at the University of Kent in 2016, and has presented conference papers, guest lectures on his work internationally. And today we invite him to talk about movies, literature, and music. Hello, Ben.
1: Hello, Juju. Very nice to to see you and to be here and to, to share some of my knowledge about some of these things that you want to talk about today.
0: Yeah, so I heard that our introduction music is Apex Twin's Music work, right?
1: Yeah, that's I would like the song. Yeah, it's by a UK um, artist, electronic artist called Apex Twin. Um, his real name is Richard D. James. And yeah, um, yeah he's, he's quite an interesting and prolific artist. Um, who's been working in the, in the fields of electronic music and what's called intelligent dance music, although many people don't like the use of that term for wow. a number of reasons.
0: What is intelligent dance music?
1: Well, it's dance music that has a more sort of cerebral or more intelligent um, element to it rather than just boom, 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 repetitive mm-hmm. beats and very like simple sort of algorithmic, um, arpeggiated, programmed music. It has something that sounds a bit more like a composition or could even be equated to forms of classical music. Now, with Aphex Twin, he's often been compared with with great classical composers like Mozart and Beethoven, which is quite strange considering that he he considers himself just a... uh, a, a glorified DJ really and, and is interested in, in rave culture so really the, the origins of this form of music and this kind of um, intelligent dance music really began in the, in the early 1980s and is a, as an amalgam or a, or a blend of mm-hmm. various different kinds of music and, and experimentation that was happening in the early 80s which came out of punk rock um, in part, but also um, a form called industrial music. Um, There's a hip hop scene um, and hip hop and uh, Chicago dance music scene yes. um, at the end of the 1970s, which sort of emerged mm-hmm. from disco, um, the sort of house scene over there, and and also from um, the krautrock mm-hmm. scene in Germany, sort of more experimental edges of experimental German rock music and avant garde music. So all these things kinda of came together in the in the early nineteen eighties and, and yes. began to to congeal into what we now think of as, as intelligent dance music.
0: So is there like a, is there any like stupid dance music?
2: <laughs> well yeah, I
1: mean you could argue that I mean dance music really did evolve in a way, into, into so many different strands and streams, um, and, you know, with amusing names and amusing types like happy hardcore, and, um, you, know, and uh, you know, all the different forms of rave and hard house and, and happy house, and you have things like uh, grime music now as well, which is a you know sort of another re-emergence of different different elements that go into dance music, but. But really, with with Aphex Twin, what we're talking about is a real punk rock yeah. sensibility that comes comes with a, a, with it with a certain form of cerebral intelligence. I think you can trace some of this back to um, bands like uh, post punk bands like Devo, yes. um, and also um, perhaps even um, bands like uh, the Raincoats and other new other new wave. The new wave bands like Talking Heads which started to and and particularly uh, there's a UK band called Wire which Wire. yeah and they, they were a punk band but they really um, wanted to intellectualise punk music and were very one of the early bands to really incorporate synthesizers into mm. their into their music and treat it seriously as an instrument not just something to make funny sound effects
0: yeah it was like punk and um... Say grunge.
1: Grunge. Yeah. yeah, grunge. They
0: are from originally. They are like subculture.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, if you if you think about bands like the Sex Pistols, um, i probably want ought to to play some some early, early examples of this this kind of music at some point. Um, but I want to kind of introduce you to one of the earliest forms. Dance, um songs, intelligent dance music songs that I heard in the sort of mid 1980s yeah. by a band called Orbital. But Orbital. I'll yeah, but I'll I'll play that in a second. So um, really, this if you think about the early days of punk rock, it was about the bands like the Ramones and bands like the, the Sex Pistols, and really, okay, they were basically just doing rock and roll, but just with a, with a slight edge to it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a real sense of experimentation, whereas with with the sort of later post-punk bands, they really started to incorporate synthesizers and other, uh, more experimentalism with their their use of music, Mm -hmm. and they started getting hold of cheaper instruments. Also another touchstone is um, Joy Division and New Order, when Mm -hmm. um, Joy Division, um, and that connection with Factory Records, when um, Ian Curtis died the Joy Division the, the emergent band of, of New Order started to experiment with synthesizers much more and they that you get the the hits um, song Blue Monday that came out of that which is a, in know real it's a real touchstone of, of electronic music
0: yeah, because for me electronic music I mean in Taiwan uh, I often hear I often I often hear it in like religious events.
2: Mm. For
0: me it's like only you know, kids love it. But mm. after I, I listened to FX Twin, I mean it really surprised me that it is so great and like you said, it's very avant garde and I can I can feel it's aesthetic. Mm. Before I couldn't um, I mean maybe I don't I didn't listen much uh, electronic music but FX Twin really just surprised me, just
1: blown my mind. Well, of course, the other, as I said, the other key touchstone behind this, and one of Ian Curtis's favourite bands when he was working on, um, you know, writing songs with the Joy Division before he tragically killed himself, but he -hmm. loved Kraftwerk, which, Mm -hmm. of course, were these pioneering German musicians of the 1970s, originally involved in more sort of psychedelic um, happenings with the Krautrock movements, which came out of sort of hippie music. And they became real pioneers actually creating their own electronic instruments to yes. try to really move away from um, the, the more organic sounds that they were, they organic. began. With more acoustic instruments with the guitar, the use of guitars mm-hmm. and, and drums and instead to just use electronic sounds in their music.
2: Different
1: instruments together. Yeah, really have this sort of more science fiction yeah. aesthetic that connects yeah. with, that really tries to look at the future and, and consider the future. So I think it's probably a good idea if we actually listen to some of this now. So I'll play a song by Kraftwerk, first of all, um, and I'll tell you a bit about that afterwards, and then we'll play another another track after oh, that. Sure. Okay. But that was a song called um, the man machine from um, the 1978 album by Kraftwerk called also called the man machine it made extensive use of synthesizers but it's probably most notable for being Kraftwerk's breakthrough album um, yes. like at, right at the tail end of the punk rock movement which sort of started to peter out in 1978 Craftworks, uh, The Model, which was actually a B-side, got lots of airplay, radio play, both in the UK and America, Mm -hmm. and became a surprising radio hit, and college radio hit, um, and sort of opened the door, really, for the possibilities of um, more experimentation by by bands with with synthesizers. And really, you see a lot of this across the 1980s in Mm -hmm. mainstream music. With pop music becoming increasingly not just commercialised, but less reliant on traditional instruments and more reliant on studio synthesizers. Yeah. You have know, the introduction of the Fairlight synthesizer, which could, like, you sample almost any you know any sound yeah. and be used as a as an instrument. And it became a very sort of cheesy effect on a lot yeah. of a lot of quite quite bad commercial music in the 1980s. Even Devo. Attempted to use a fair like, so I think probably now's a good time to actually listen to a Devo song. So this is a Devo song from 1980. Um, So Devo were a new wave band that gained some success and a sort of surprising success, given that their their aesthetics are totally postmodern and totally off the wall. Um, exactly Mm -hmm. you
0: say new wave. Does it have any relation to French new wave? Then. No, not That's not
1: at all really, accent. not at all really, it's just a kind of a new wave of, of yes. sort of punk rock really, it was kind of beyond punk rock, you yeah, have bands like um, R.E.M. Yeah. coming from this and, and various other post-punk bands where punk rock kind of exploded and created lots of new forms, um, people, bands like Blondie and Talking Heads are referred to as um, new wave bands as well, but with Devo, um, yeah, they, they were a very strange bunch who, who were at Kent State University and were um, at the time there was a, a like riots and the police actually shot dead several student protesters on the campus back mm-hmm. in 1970. Wow. And um, the guys in Devo, Gerald Casale mainly and Mark Mothersbaugh, they they wanted to sort of respond to this. So really, they're art students mm-hmm. who came at. at sort of punk rock mm-hmm. and, and rock music in the 1970s with a bit of a twist, mm-hmm. and wanted to do something different and make more of an art statement
2: than anything.
1: Mm-hmm. But Devo, as a band, um, they, they really wanted to experiment, and I think you see that in the music. But they, they experimented like, extensively with synthesizers and with electronic instruments um, mm-hmm. from the beginning of, of their, their 1980s. Period, and I think it's very interesting. So, anyway, here's a song from their 1980 album Freedom of Choice, a song called Snowball. Devo, wonderful band. Sad, sadly, a couple of the members have, have died um, fairly uh, within know, the last yeah. few years, mm-hmm. so um, it's a bit tragic. But but they still they still remain active or semi-active. Um, Gerald Casale is quite a political figure. mark mm-hmm. Mothersbore is very notable for doing lots of kids' TV show kids music. TV show? Yeah, things like um, Space Ghost. The other one, Rugrats, was a famous TV show that he did the music for. And he does lots of movies, lots of kids movie music, so he's quite into this sort of cheap, um, cute stuff.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So uh, anyway, to move on a little bit, so electronic music really developed at pace in the early 1980s, um, certainly the mid-1980s, when you get an explosion on the underground scene, in line with an explosion, particularly in the UK, um, I'm referring to here, with what what became, what started off as, as indie music and became taken over by baggy music in Manchester. And this coincided with sort of increased um, use of drugs, uh, like hallucinogenic drugs such as mm-hmm. LSD, and also mixed with that and speed, um, but most importantly was MDMA or, or ecstasy, which became.
0: Well,
1: I know a bit about this because of my research in in yeah. literature. Because of um, you know, I've, I've written extensively about William S. Burroughs, who's one of the family fathers of, um, of drug literature, if, mm-hmm. if you like. And so this period really was a sort of a second coming the second hippie explosion after the 1960s, certainly in the in the UK, with this emergence of, of, of a new drug culture. Mm-hmm. And electronic music really reflected that on a number of levels. First of all, mm-hmm. it was able to but create a very powerful pulsing dance rhythm mm-hmm. um, that really could, could capture the sensibilities of a of a club at that time. Mm-hmm. And you even have you know bands trying to sort of capture that that spirit and move away from again traditional instruments that indie bands were using mm-hmm. and involve more electronic instruments here. Bands like for example The Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays. Um, I already mentioned New Order mm-hmm. we were involved in doing that already. Um, and it seems like that was in part inspired by their, their first use dabbling with, with ecstasy. Ecstasy being a drug that really sort of makes the body want to move, really a physical drug that, that creates a sense of both euphoria, but also a needing to dance and to ex- expressively dance.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I think this is very important in, in combination with um, the, the kind of the things that electronic music could do particularly in terms of also sampling and sampling music as i mentioned the fairlight synthesizer that could sample sounds where you also start to get sort of tape samples and various other sam- sampling techniques becoming more more widespread you already had sampling being used extensively in hip hop music mm-hmm. but became prevalent in different types of, of dance music at the time you also had... Ambient music um, appearing as well, which again, after people were using ecstasy for long, long periods, you have in the the, the rave clubs and the rave um, festival areas, you have chill out zones mm-hmm. for people to calm down.
0: Yeah, um, it's like the music <laughs> it's about sensation.
1: Yeah, very much about sensation. Like
0: you know, few days ago, I went to an exhibition, and the exhibition is really interesting. So it show us the image of sound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And especially electronic sound, and the image is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah it's it's quite surprising how much uh, how much power um, electronic music can have over um, a person's sort of psychological and physical makeup. Yeah, I mean you the
0: know. same as drug, I think mean, that's the connection.
1: Absolutely, both things kind of work together in a kind of harmony. And I think that's what people were discovering in the 1980s, and certainly Aphex Twin was right at the forefront yeah. forefront of that.
0: Speaking of this, I, I, I think I know that Aphex Twin, the DJ, has a kind of like, he can see the sound.
1: Yeah, he, he suffers from, well, apparently he suffers from synesthesia, where, mm-hmm. again, he sees sounds as colours.
0: Oh, as colours. They
1: create a sort of colour effect on his, uh, you know, his... Um, in his perception, mm-hmm. perceptual field, which is quite fascinating,
0: really. Yeah, it's really fascinating.
1: I think now's probably a good time to listen to some music. I'd like to play some ambient music and bring it down. So, this is by a band called The Orb, who are fascinating on a number of levels. First of all, because there is a connection between The Orb and um, both world music and punk rock, in that um, the uh, one of the, the members of the org was, um, he had a, well he, he was a record producer, he was very closely associated with um, with the record indus- recording industry, and he kind of kind of despised it in a way, and his name is, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, he was also connected with a band called the KLF, which were very much an anti an anti-band. Oh, Bill Drummond, it is. Um, so, so Bill Drummond was a member of of the org as well. Um, and well, well, he wasn't. No, he wasn't a member of the org. But he was a member of the KLF. But Jimmy Cauty, who was also a member of the KLF, was a member of the org as well. So I've, I've got myself mixed up between my, my members. But it's it's a it's a complicated.
2: Yeah. Uh, family tree and a lot of
1: these groups were very closely connected but mm-hmm. also what was the big stimulus behind the orb? they began as a kind of a, a chill out band really about in very much influenced by brian eno and craft work
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um they're very much um, obsessed with that idea of coming down you know when people were on ecstasy they'd be very high but then mm-hmm. when it when the drug wore off, it introduced a sort of hangover,
2: yeah.
1: a sort of coming down, which needed these chill-out spaces, and the all were involved in that very much. But also closely connected with, with them with, with, was a friend of theirs called Jar Wobble, who's mm-hmm. got an interesting name anyway. Yeah, Jar. Um, yeah. and he was, um, he was the bass player of um, Johnny Rotten's band after the Sex Pistols, mm-hmm. uh, which was pill, Public Image Limited, and it's very much also very much experimenting with with dub sounds and dub reggae sounds and experimental. Oops, just dropped a dropped something there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I'd like to play a song by The Orb to bring things down.
0: is really cool. I mean, it is repetitive, but also, like, have its own diversity.
1: Yeah, there are a whole range of different mixes of the song. Yeah.
0: um, It's somehow the same, and somehow it's actually different.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, but, like, there is a 40-minute, the full-length version of the Uh song is is the length of an album. Uh Like, 40 minutes. In fact, it was, it held the record as being the longest, Single in the charts, um, you know the longest length of a single song yeah. to, to reach the, uh, <laughs> the the charts in the UK. Of
0: course, it's experimental
1: too. <laughs> yeah, so they, they had to do an, an edited version when they appeared on the television, and they had a famous appearance on the TV where the two musicians, mm-hmm. if you like, played an imaginary, a, a very weird game of chess ah. uh, on the TV. It became quite quite famous. Yeah. So it's very cool. A lot of their songs actually emerged from their friends that I mentioned, Jiao Wobble, just sending them tapes of interesting samples and okay. interesting voices and things that he could heard, mm-hmm. And they would just incorporate those samples into, the, into their music.
0: Okay. So I think, I think uh, today our dan- intelligent dance music part is coming to end. But we will have second part next week. And now I want to talk about movies. Because we are a literature association, and uh, we we do we do screen movies every every week.
1: Yeah, that's right. We try to try to screen uh, a movie every week if we can for the students. Um, and I know that on we've got a whole um, schedule worked out for this month. Mm-hmm. So on April the 9th, I'm going to be screening. Well, it's the Thursday I'm going to be screening uh, 1984 so uh, a movie based on George Orwell's great story yeah, yeah. Um, then on April the 14th I'm going to be um, we're going to be screening David Lynch's acclaimed uh, 2001 movie Mulholland Drive that sort of deals with the underbelly of Hollywood it's very much a post-modern movie but Breaks a lot of the boundaries of narrative and storytelling. Very great,
2: yeah.
1: one of the greatest films of the 21st century, supposedly. Um, then on the 21st of April, I'm going to go back and do a screening another science fiction movie. Yeah, because you're
0: teaching science fiction. I'm this teaching semester. science
1: fiction this semester, so there is very much a focus on sci-fi. So I'm going to be um, screening the um, Paul Verhoeven. Mm -hmm. Um, adaptation of Starship Troopers, so he's more famous for movies like Robocop and Total Recall Mm -hmm. Um, The great Dutch director,
0: we've watched that movie before,
1: yeah we watched that Um, we know it's the same director so he's very violent but also very (laughs) satirical
0: Totally.
1: so um, this is his adaptation of the Robert Heinlein classic novel that's basically about earth facts Earth has become more or less a fascist, a fascist dictatorship. Um, it's like now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, arguably. Ironically. Arguably and ironically, yes. So that's a, that's a really great and interesting movie if you have a strong stomach.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then on the 28th of April, something a bit more interesting is the 1938 uh, Marcel Carné movie, Pepe Le Moco, which Pepe stars Le Jean Gabin. Sounds so cute. Great Jean Gabin. Well, it's not that cute. It's actually <laughs> <biggest> about... <laughs>
0: it's, <laughs> well, well,
1: it's very interesting, again, given oh. the, the current state of the world of being, um, being under sort of house arrest. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not, not Marcel Carné. it's, it's Julian de, de Vivier, mm-hmm. um, but from the same school of poetic realism, kind yeah. of pre-film noir movie. And um, this movie is, is really great for a number of reasons, but one is it, it focuses on this gangster, Pepe Le mm-hmm. um, So what does it mean by Pepe Le Moco?
0: Is it French?
1: Um, well, it's, it is... Moko is slang for a man from Toulon. It just means the man mm-hmm. from Toulon, mm-hmm. which is derived from a, a French dialect called Occitan. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's sort of from the, from the south of France, really. Um, but it's it's great because he's a criminal on the run from the police who lives in the kasbah in Algiers in North Africa, um, and the the local police keep trying to get him to come out, but he refuses. So he really, he's in lockdown mm-hmm. in, in the right now again. Yeah, again in the kasbah, which is like a maze anyway. I mean, I've been to different parts of Morocco um, in the in the Kasbahs yes, and in two cool. two parts of Morocco, and they really are like mazes. You just mm. you walk down two streets and you're completely yeah, and yeah. this movie captures that feeling very well. It's mm-hmm. a really great, beautifully acted and beautifully shot movie. I'm looking
2: forward
1: to it. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's our schedule for April. Really. So I hope to see lots of lots of people there. Yeah, I hope so too. You, oh, I should say we usually screen the movies in R one three seven, and they usually start at seven thirty or usually starting at eight pm. Yeah,
0: humanity's humanity's beauty. That's great. Yeah. Okay. And today I want to talk about the movie uh, Midnight Cowboy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: because I know that um, you also um, study uh, James Leo Hurley. Oh yes.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, Midnight Cowboy is a 1969 adaptation of James Leo Hurley's 1965 novel Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, Hurley is a fascinating kind of forgotten, forgotten yeah. author. Yes. Yeah. For, for me, he's one of the great writers of the, the mid-20th century in America, and he's forgotten in large part because he basically stopped writing. He wrote these four great, great novels, along with some plays and a few short stories. Oh, he also Yeah, and then just decided to, to get out of writing, stopped writing mm-hmm. and, and lived his life. Uh, fairly happy. You also did a little bit of acting as well. Oh really? Some bit part acting. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I really I really love this music. I mean I just I cried so hard, <laughs> you know, when I watched it. I mean it is so, you know just so beautiful, poetic and sad. Yeah. So it's you know very existential.
1: Oh very much so. Um yeah Hurley he was very much influenced by existentialism. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, I've seen his letters to, to Paul Bowles, and he, he shares his, you know, he, he gets a sense from Bowles' work that they, they were both very much influenced by uh, probably more Albert Camus than Jean Paul Sartre's mm-hmm. brand of, of existentialism. Um, and they really do deal with that, that mm-hmm. you know, existential dread and the sense of personal isolation um, and the disconnect disconnections from other people in a really interesting way, but I think that earlier really captures um, the emotions in a very, uh, very interesting, very, very realistic way.
0: Yeah, I think um, because I before before watching you know Cowboy, I watched uh, the Joker, mm-hmm. Joker, and I think they are both focused on focusing on you know those characters that is the you know, small characters and in New York, right?
2: Mm.
0: I just feel like it's a com- comparison between small character in a big city mm. and a kind of lost.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see parallels with, with Joker. And I can and I think that um, definitely the Joker is trying to channel a lot of the sensibilities of, of what we now talk about in relation to 1970s American cinema. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and I think in mid- my... Cowboy marks really the turning point um, when Hollywood cinema really started to embrace a lot of dark themes and a lot of the great directors really started to to come to the forefront in Hollywood after the 1960s. That's not to say there weren't lots of dark movies in the 1960s, certainly Roman Polanski's movies like um, Repulsion and um, several others I can think of from the 60s. But yeah. the '70s, they really start to come out. Yeah. You, know, you get stuff like um, it's like a gold age of movies. You do. You get well, and of course, Midnight Cowboy won the best the best movie um, Oscar in 19, uh, six, was 1969. 1969, yeah, it at the 42nd Academy Awards. Anyway, I think it's 19, 1969. Um, mm-hmm. And but it
0: was an X- X-rated film.
1: It was an X-rated film, but it, it was interesting because it beat Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which a lot of people actually find is a more memorable movie, and more people like refer to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is written by, by William Golding, um, which is the great Paul Newman, Robert Redford, who were the, the big, the huge, big stars of, of Hollywood at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but it really, like, um, for for Midnight Cowboy, with it's it's a really sad, tragic ending, and it's, yeah, it's I mean, like it's too
0: tragic. total I just, lack
1: of uplift.
0: I couldn't help, you know, cry. Yeah,
1: it yeah. just, it just is, um, you yeah, the, the only other sort of director I can think of is, is maybe, my, um, oh, his name? um, the German director, Fassbinder, whose movie's just like a relentless, slog and then something sad happens Yeah. And it, it, it really is a challenge in, in some ways to, to get through it but but there, there's so much heart and spirit in the acting in John Boyd and um, Dustin Hoffman's acting and Schlesinger's direction is actually much more artistic and much more experimental mm-hmm. than, yeah it's
0: very experimental
1: yeah it's like, easily missed
0: okay. it's like the cut up Cut
1: up scene? Very much in so. The, uh, very, in the
0: film.
1: very much so. It really captures something of, of the era uh, yeah. of that sort of experimentalism with um, Andy Warhol's fa- factory and, and exactly. William Burroughs' cut up cut-up techniques coming to come the forefront. And yet that's often overlooked when people think about this movie and discuss it. You know, mostly they, they consider its X rated status and they really focus very much on. The really tremendous performance, really, by by Dustin Hoffman as the yeah,
0: he's so great in this movie.
1: Yeah, he sadly lost out. He didn't didn't get the off Oscar that year. I'm trying oh, to remember who who beat him to the Oscar fair. in that year.
0: <laughs> I remember
1: <really laughs> like the cowboy or Western movie. Uh, West oh. No, I think that was the best actor Oscar. I think you might you might actually be right. You might be right. It was, it was snapped up by John Wayne for True Grit, I think. But let me... Let me just, I'm just going to check. Let's see. Best actor. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman was nominated, but John Wayne did get it for, for True Grit, which I think is... Um, I mean, True Grit is great, but I think maybe Dustin Hoffman should have edged that, really. But anyway.
0: I mean also like the stories about um, Hustler, mm. I And mean, usually like maybe we focus on prostitution
1: mm.
0: in, in like fancy Yeah, or
1: well, we should we should play the, the trailer for a second. So we okay. can play the trailer.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, I think I think we should
2: play the trailer. Joe Buck. Where's that Joe Buck? Yeah, where's that Joe Buck? I'm Joe Buck from Texas. Enrico Rizzo from the Bronx. His name is Joe Buck. He's a cowboy. He just, uh, just came in from Texas. Cowboy,
1: huh? I ain't a for real cowboy.
2: But I am one hell of a stud. (laughs) And how come you ain't scored once the whole time you've been in New York? Because I need management, goddammit! Let's go. Hey! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! You were going to ask me for money? How much is this going to cost me? Twenty bucks. You big Texas longhorn bull! No rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. Huh? Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. I, I should never have asked you up here. More goddamn faggots in this town. I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna run you ragged! woo <laughs> hey, Listen, don't get sore anything, okay? I don't think I can walk anymore. I'm scared. You know what they do to you when when they find out that you can't walk. Walk. Oh, Christ. Everybody's talking about me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stopping staring. I can't see their faces. Only the shadows of their Not eyes. Up there, up there for a cowboy. I'm going where the sun keeps shining.
1: For the rain. Going well. Okay, so do you want to just give a summary of the plot? I think it's probably worth doing at this stage. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll give a summary. <laughs> so it, the story centres around Joe Buck, who's this young, uh, young Texan guy who he works a menial job as a as a dishwasher. Really, and he's, he's unsure of, of really his his background. Sort of raised, I think, by by his grandmother, and like he he feels like that the one thing in his life that he's good at is sex, Um, and he he loves wearing like cowboy clothes, and He thinks a feature. Yeah, he thinks that he he can go to New York. Somebody's told him that like all the women in New York will pay money for sex, and he thinks, well, that's what he's good at. That's what he's gonna go and do.
0: Is it because it's, it's about American
1: culture? Yeah, it was a romantic kind of allusion to to the like. symbolism of, of virility and, and a real man is a cowboy. I uh, it's
0: quite, because they're a like hero. It's
1: very, very much so. It's it's been yeah. it, which is interesting given that you know of course John Wayne, the true man's man cowboy, won the Oscar that yeah. year for best actor, of mm-hmm. course. That um, this movie Midnight Cowboy is very much like flips that and satirizes that wow. idea and shows how underlying this idea of virility in a real man you have a sense that that can be misinterpreted. really is about the constructed nature of not just the cowboy as a symbol of male masculinity and virility and, and strength. But how America is a kind of false construction and underlying all the kind of American dreams of success mm-hmm. and of, again, strength and virility underlying that is this fragility and sickness that, um, that Joe Buck is constantly confronted with. And he keeps trying to see the best in everything mm-hmm. um, until, again, what happens at the end of the movie. <laughs> to, yeah. Perhaps does or doesn't change change yes, his viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, um, without spoiling it too much. But anyway, so he goes to New York, he has all these bad experiences trying to, to kind of make money with people, and the women he has sex with go, What? Well, what You expect me to pay you?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And it
1: turns out like he pay, pay them back. Yeah, so he, he runs out of money, and of course he meets up with this hu- other hustler who, who tries to steal money from him already. Ratso Rizzo, played by Dustin Hoffman, who um, is similarly, you know, on Down and Out is a homeless guy, and he's also acutely sick, um, and yeah, it's just. But their relationship is one that's, that's very sweet and and it's very well well judged, and you also get these real sort of vignettes, these views of different sides of society in New York. Um, particularly from, you know, eccentric Warhol-like mm-hmm. artists having happenings um, mm-hmm. all the way through to sort of rich, wealthy women who who live off men, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it, it's a real fascinating movie and a fascinating story. And the, the novel itself is really beautifully yeah, um, really constructed. constructed. Um, I, I recommend anybody to read the novel as well as to, to watch the movie.
0: I think. Mm-hmm. Also... Also, I don't know why this when you when you introduce it, also reminds remind me of the Catch and Why and the kind of innocence. Mm. I mean, he's, I think he's an innocent guy.
1: Yeah, well, I think. Mean, he has
0: a kind heart, hope for the best. Yeah. But the society, like, beating down.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. There's a real, again, there's a real. Interesting sensibility that Hurley has grasping the sort of the inner voice of his characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that comes out, you know, of course in, in The Catcher in the Ride, but in his other works such as Awful Down, um, which is about um, a young boy whose brother sort of leaves town and his his journey to try and find what's happened to his brother and his brother who the family all look up to turns out to be not as good as they, they thought he was. Um, and also his, his later novel um, the Season of the Witch which is actually from a, from a young girl's perspective as she kind of fully embraces the hippie movement, and travels to New York City um, and again gets involved in some very strange um, encounters there. So I think he's really he's very much interested in looking at the sort of the lower sides of life and the under, the underclasses and the people who have, have perhaps dropped out. Yeah. Or lost out in society, and, and tries to to capture a real sense of their spirit and their humanity, um, you know. And to some extent, with hilarious consequences, there there is some quite funny renderings there, but also some real tragedy, real pathos. Mm-hmm. I think
0: um, it's like um, tragic comedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And I think I think he, he captures that really, really well, really, really nicely.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so thank you for today, Ben. And I think we'll still continue the intelligent dance music next time. And we'll still continue talking about movie and literature.
1: Don't forget the magazine as well.
0: Oh, yeah, so with uh, the Literature Association, we also call for submissions. If you have any uh, writing or drawing or painting, or anything, you know, any, any artwork please just submit and we will post basically we will basically publish everything and the reason why we um we start this magazine is we want to because in this in this age people just read or you know just use their phone on the internet but we still think that book is Something important and beautiful, and I think if we if we publish a book and then we can see that oh our art is really there we can touch it. So, yeah, so,
1: so send us send us your work. One other yeah. thing as well, I'm also connected with the um, UCC Skateboarding Club. Um, <laughs> you are so busy. I'll, I'll You're the instructor. I, right? I'm apparently the instructor. I'm supposed to help but I don't know exactly what's happening but if any of you are interested in (laughs) skateboarding then we'll put the the um the QR code for the line group on the on the Facebook page and you can see it we'll put a load of other stuff on the Facebook page for you to look at um and also if you're interested in joining the Literature Association do send us a message as well okay
0: okay bye bye